Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. Today's episode is a little different than normal. This is a segment within About Abroad that we call About Abroad Happy Hours, which is really just an informal way for me to go hang out with other expats in real life and sit down, have a coffee, have a beer, maybe a glass of wine, and chat about the stuff that we love to talk about on this show. Expat life, traveling, living abroad, all the fun stuff that comes along with that, just like normal, but the audio will probably not be nearly as good as normal when I'm in a studio. So bear with us as we try to take advantage of just some time together in real life, not over Zoom, and hanging out in person with good friends, good people that have amazing stories to tell. So today you will be introduced to my friend Bree, who has figured out how to travel the world without utilizing any tech skills, sitting at a laptop all day, none of that. She works with people and she gets to see the world and she's done a lot of amazing things. So if that sounds interesting to you, you're going to love this first edition of About Abroad Happy Hours. Cheers and enjoy. All right, Bree, welcome to About Abroad. Thanks, Chase. Nice <laughs> to be here. It's especially nice for me because you are the first guest that I've had on the show to actually bring me a beer for the show, which is really amazing. That, yeah. <laughs> I, I could imagine that would have made your afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> the Aussie hospitality. We call it Southern hospitality where I'm from. I don't know if you guys have that sort of thing going on in, uh, in Australia, mm. but this is quite hospitable. I am a very hospitable person. No, I, I'm not too quite sure, quite, quite sure if we have a term, we, we coin a term like that in Australia. But in Australia, you'd be my mate. So just brought a beer for a mate to have a chat. Well, cheers, you know? mate. Cheers. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm really excited to have you here today. We are, we are good friends here in Valencia and we always have a great time when we get together. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, though, is like you have so many little aspects of your background that I find super intriguing. And I think people that listen to the show would find intriguing, but I don't know a lot of details. So I'm hoping that we can dig into those today. We can. <laughs> nice. So, okay. First of all, I want to start with you're, you're obviously you're Australian, you're living here in Spain. And I think that's in a funny way, sort of the, the, almost the boring part of the, <laughs> of the Odyssey of Brie <laughs> is, uh, because, you know, we're, we're both living here. So it's like, I, well, I think we're on the same visa, right? You're on mm-hmm. the non-lucrative visa, same as me. So that's, that's good to know right off the bat that visa applies to Aussies as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But I think what's even more interesting is to like go back a little bit and I'll kind of let you start where you want to start, but you have lived in like 
a million different places. <laughs> and so just off the top of your head, can you rattle them off? Like, uh, like where, where have you called home, quote unquote? So obviously Australia, and I was there until just a couple of years after high school. And then I always had kind of the travel bug and wanted to just see the world. So I then moved, went and did some backpacking and traveling with some friends, moved to the UK, um, called London home for a couple of years. Um, my visa ran out there. So I had friends that were still living in the UK, wanted to go traveling in Europe with them. So I moved to Dublin for some time and then Buenos Aires for some time too to study Spanish, but I didn't do a very good job of that. Uh, <laughs> it's a fact, tough place to learn Spanish too. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, I really like the Argentinian accent, but uh, uh, I was quite young and the, the glitz and glamour of the Buenos Aires, the city just enticed me a little bit too much. Uh, and then to study, that is. And then um, I moved back to London uh, after moving to Qatar. And I lived in Qatar in the Middle East for four years. And then... We'll come back to that on, for sure. <laughs> off and on I moved, uh, well, I had a job that took me to Saudi Arabia. So I lived in Saudi Arabia for a while. Um, and then that, I, I, yeah, and then I moved to Valencia, Spain. So... How it's did, a, bit colorful, <laughs> a bit of a colorful journey, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that uh, gets back to why I believe Valencia is the boring part, um, because <laughs> <laughs> those are uh, those. That's quite a list of of places, and and you know, a lot of people have uh, maybe traveled to some of those places, but to call all of them home in the last handful of years is a pretty pretty amazing thing. So, of all those places, are any of do any of them stand out as like places where you would potentially move back? And when you consider all the different factors. Mm. Or are you, you happy here? No, not one of them, in fact. Including um, Australia. Australia, I can't rule out. Um, it's hard it's to rule out home. always home, right? Your family's there. There's many, many things that I do miss. Um, and the older I get, I do feel that I'm missing more of those things. Uh, but all of the others, I had a good time and I have great memories, but I don't aspire to move back to any of them. When I lived in London, I loved London. Mm -hmm. I just, I would have tried anything to be able to have stayed there legally and have been able to, to stay on somehow. But I went back a few years ago for a holiday and I realized it just wasn't my place anymore. And I suppose that's what the beauty of getting yeah. older is, right? We change our ways and we look at things differently. So Valencia is a good place to live, gives yeah. me a good balance. I'm happy here. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Like uh, a place can be everything to you in that moment, right? right? And it's like, oh, this is perfect for me at... Uh, 24 or whatever right, exactly. or, and then but then you you figure out a different pace of life for the next chapter and mm -hmm. that's that's always I think that's a fun part of like the the moving around and living in different places kind of journey is you, you figure that out as you go 100% and I think that's a really interesting thing as well to keep in mind when you do travel or do decide to live in other countries because it doesn't always have to just be that one and only place you can you know keep moving and keep trying and keep meeting different people and and it's all the adventure. Of yeah, it. yeah, that's super fun. So mo most of the time you were moving to these, you mentioned like a couple of them, like Qatar was four years, mm -hmm. London was roughly two and a half, three years. Two and a half years. So these are, these are significant periods of time. It's mm -hmm. not like you're there for three months on a tourist visa and, and then hopping out and going to the next place. You weren't like digital nomading. <laughs> no, uh, the only place that was probably, well, Buenos Aires, I stayed for four months and... 
Dublin, I think maybe five months. Okay. So they were shorter periods of time, but everywhere else was like, yeah, a, a couple of years or more. What a fun life to consider five <laughs> five months in Dublin, a short period of time, right? <laughs> Uh, many yeah. people listening um, are, are envious, I'm sure. So that's uh, well. Okay, so let's go back real quick. I, I really want to spend some time on the Middle East. I think that's mm-hmm. super interesting because, just frankly, a lot of people from the the Americas, Europe, uh, Australia. That's not you know they're they're excited to come do some of the other places that you went to, and you went and lived in some some different places. So I imagine some people are really interested in hearing mm-hmm. that. I want to come back to that. With what you mentioned about London is really interesting because you said if you could stay there legally. So you were there for two and a half years, which is a pretty good amount of time. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to stay that long Mm -hmm. and what that process was like? And then ultimately why that couldn't continue? Mm -hmm. So I have an Australian passport. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have the luck of any ancestors that have brought me the luck of the golden ticket of the European passport. And at the time, well... This was very, very um, long time before Brexit kind of was anything. So I was able to, before Brexit was anything and the UK was still, you know, EU and everything was would have been easier if I had an EU passport. However, the UK extends a working holiday visa to Australians and I'm sure, uh-huh. you know, there's a lot of these kind of working holiday schemes or different visas that people can investigate into to be able to live these kind of have these kind of adventures so I had a working holiday visa which was for two years at the time and then I actually I went back there at one stage I was studying online and I went back and stayed in London for about another eight months or something and just studied online so the working holiday visa yeah enabled me to go to London and live and work and unfortunately once that was over I didn't have a lot of options to be able to continue in the UK, so uh, I had to move on at the time. Why does it come to an end? Like, is, is there a, a max time period or...? Yeah, so it's a, it's a two-year visa. You okay. get given a two-year visa. Um, I don't know what the current restrictions on yeah. that visa are. This was maybe over 15 years ago. That oh, I, was it really that yeah. long ago? You so, strike me as so young. I had no idea. No one can tell over the, over the microphone how There's a how massive following of About Abroad. Uh, <laughs> everybody now knows. <laughs> but yes, I have. I, I, I moved away from Australia about 15 years ago and the UK was the first country the first that stop. I went to. So I was 20 more or less, just a little bit over 20 at the time. And... Well, it might even be longer than 15 years. My math isn't so good with working all that We're not out. testing yeah. you, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> Your visa doesn't um, re- require this. So. I'm trying to somehow keep my age a secret. But I think <laughs> the cat's just, out of the bag yeah, now. Yeah, what I've just said there is going to lead people to understanding how old I am. So, yeah, I went to the UK. It was a two-year visa, and there was not a lot of options to be able to extend that at the time. So I, I had friends that had moved to the UK after me, and... I, we, we had made plans to travel through Europe and my UK visa finished. So I applied for a very similar like scheme in mm-hmm. Dublin uh, or in Ireland and moved to Dublin for five or six months while I was waiting for that, that trip that my friends and I had planned throughout Europe, saved some more money. And then we did like a two month Europe trip. So 
What What did you do for work in in London and Dublin? Were you mm-hmm. just were you in career mode or were you odd jobs or what? It was more or less odd jobs. I didn't know really anyone when I moved to London. I moved there with a friend of mine or a few friends of mine. And we all kind of ended up finding a job with a real estate company called Foxton's. Okay. And we worked as their office, you know, like a manager's kind of thing, like a office administration manager looking after the office. And and then a few like uh, ex- executive assistant roles with different companies. And the same thing when I moved to Dublin, I got the same kind of work. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. So that was on that visa. That was pretty straightforward. That wasn't like a big... Yeah, I like, mean... Like you didn't have to jump through hoops to, no, to do this kind of work. No, no. There was there was a, like a lot of opportunities at the time to be able to get anything really that you wanted to. I think. Into into work legally. Uh-huh. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Great. Okay. That's really that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that people can can look into as an easy way because a lot of times with these visas you can arrive to a place mm-hmm. you can stay but you can't work. Right. And exactly. And it becomes very difficult exactly. if you don't have remote work or something. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, cool. And then, and how about in Buenos Aires? Like, just real quick, was it easy to stay for a long period? For four, you mentioned four, four or months. Five or? months. I think I really, I, I don't remember it ever being a problem. It was kind of either in between that London Dublin stint, or maybe just after it. And four or five months, I just, just had been there traveling at the start before I moved to London, and I really loved it. And I made some friends while I was there and then I went back again and I thought, I really love this city and I want to learn Spanish. I'm going to, I really thought it was going to be easy to learn a language. I thought, yeah, <laughs> I'll just go and I'll just do a little bit of study and Osmosis, <laughs> I'll just absorb it. It'll I really be great. Did, you know, I have this thing that when I was like 18, I used to go to the gym and if it was really busy, this is really short, like showing how silly I, I could be, but uh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll tell the world about it. So... I used to go to the gym and if it was really busy, I was like, oh, I, I came, I packed my bag and I came. So I've been to the gym, you know, it'll give me some kind of magical effect. <laughs> and anyway, so I, I it's like to, I buy the book and I don't even have to read it. Just it put just, it under my pillow and go to sleep and it should just in absorb there. into my brain. So I really, I, I feel that that was kind of my idea about learning a language. So I went there and did a little bit of partying and went out to the nice restaurants and made some lovely friends, walked around the city and had lovely, just a lovely time <laughs> absorbing the culture of Argentina and thought that that would just miraculously have me learning Spanish, basically. I did attend some classes, um, but yeah, I did, <laughs> I did walk away from that experience having not learned much Spanish. So, yes, that was four or five months. I can't remember it being an issue. I just think I must have gone on a tourist visa. Yeah. And, yeah. Pretty standard. Pretty yeah. standard. Really nice. Did you um, sort of go in a totally different direction? But you you obviously had a craving to, to travel and to go explore. Mm-hmm. And you Australians have a, a very strong stereotype reputation right. for doing that. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, you guys, you guys are all over the world uh-huh. and you travel a lot. But this is more extensive than going on a one-month holiday or something like that. Did you – were you eager to get out of Australia and and just to see other parts of the world? Or was there some, some reason that you wanted to leave? You know, was it sort of a, a push – the push-pull factor, which which one was more important in that – in this way? I think I'm very curious by nature. And so I was always just really interested in learning a lot about different cultures. Um, My parents were great at bringing us up 
trying different foods. My mum used to, she's a great cook and she used to cook a lot of different foods at home. I think Australia is very multicultural country. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you're completely right. You hit the nail on the head. We are really curious to travel. And I think that that stems from, it is a country so far away. So if you go um, on any kind of trip, it has to at least be two or three weeks because basically to experience any kind of different culture, different cuisine, different language, you're a minimum of eight to nine hours before you experience that on, you know, by flight. So when I lived in London, you know, I'd leave my desk on a Friday afternoon and get to the airport by the tube and then have have gotten to another country and been at the dinner table in that other country experiencing exactly that, the different language, the different culture and the different food within three hours, you know, yeah. from door to door. And that to me just blew my mind. I just found it fascinating. I thought that that was amazing. Um, but, yeah, my parents probably is what sparked the most of it. We always... We always used to talk about different places and and I was just really curious to travel and I didn't ever expect that it would last this long. I never went left Australia with the plan that it would be so so long, 15 or more years. I just one thing kept taking me to another basically. Yeah. We share that. Like uh, I think like not just you and I but like Americans and Australians, mm. we we also like it's very hard for me to I have to drive about 15 hours before I hear a slightly different accent right you know and catch a plane and fly across the country to to maybe get some different type of food you know mm-hmm. it's it's just very similar so when you get to a place like Europe or even like in in central or south america or somewhere where you can like cross borders and get distinctly different not just accents but languages cultures foods traditions all these things it's like mind-blowing and very addicting exactly completely addictive and fascinating isn't it like it's just really that's probably just what kept driving me I'm I still this year has been especially an interesting year yeah to not enable us to be able to live that life unfortunately however I still do feel that curiosity and that excitement when I do get the like I'm lucky enough to be able to travel and experience that in a different country it it hasn't gone away and if it ever does then maybe that's the time to go home but I don't see that it will I always said I wanted to be in a place long enough because because you know like my wife and I Allison were bouncing around a lot Mm -hmm. traveling a lot Mm -hmm. but we were like kind of visa hopping and I, I said I wanted to get to a place where I would be there long enough to get bored. Mm-hmm. And like exactly. I've, COVID and coronavirus, this this finally forced us into that place where I'm like, sometimes I'm here in Valencia and I'm like, God, I really miss traveling. I'm, right. I'm ready to go somewhere else. Not permanently. I really like living here, but I'm so eager to to experience something new again. And yeah, it gets it does get addicting. Right. So, okay. Coming back to, so at the, the really interesting, one of the, really interesting things about your story is at some point you become a flight attendant Mm -hmm. and this opens up a lot of doors if I understand correctly. Right. So let's, (laughs) let's just generally, very generally speaking, tell us about the flight attendant, uh, kind of like what that means Mm because flight attendant can mean a lot of different things on airlines or Mm -hmm. private jets or whatever. So how this job, how it came about and how that journey began. Okay, so I had worked in aviation after school uh, in Australia. When I left school, I started working, yeah, in aviation on the ground. And it was always something that I wanted to do. I wanted to try my luck at being a flight attendant. I always just, I suppose it goes hand in hand for me. I thought, why not do a job that 
somehow I get paid to to be able to go and do what I am paying my own money to do you know (laughs) I'm curious and I I think that the job would suit me I'm a people person so yeah I worked in aviation for a few years after I left school and then I moved to London and it wasn't really as easy to get a job in aviation when I moved to London so followed what I said before about those few you know I was an executive assistant for some different companies and did some temp temp work And then I went back to Australia actually just for a a brief stint, maybe like a year and a half to study. And I studied a Bachelor of Business in Communications and Events, thinking that I would follow that. But then I just missed the world and I wanted to travel (laughs) again. Uh, So while I was studying, a friend of mine was working for Emirates and she said to me, "Why why don't you apply to fly? You've always wanted to do it. You've worked in aviation before. And you can keep studying. So I was study. I took it online, and I got a job with Qatar Airways, and I st- I worked with them for four years. And I loved it, and I finished my degree while I was there. But I just loved it. I couldn't I couldn't think of going back to a desk life. Yeah. And I wanted to keep traveling in some way. I wanted to 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 keep seeing the world. And at that time, I mean, digital nomad was kind of a newer thing, and I. I didn't really explore it enough at the time to know, like, maybe I could. It didn't really I, seem like other options. Like, no, there weren't, there like, a ton a of, options. of options. Yeah, at the time that wasn't that long. That was it, very no, recent. Exactly. Like, that was just, like, a d- digital nomad. is like, what is that? Years, yeah, less, right? And, yep. I mean, even then, in the last five years, maybe yeah. it's become more popular in those first five years. So, so this was really, like, the, the cream of the crop job where you're like, I get to time, travel around the world. Exactly. I get to use my natural skills and... Not only that, live in a foreign country as well. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just what took me into it. Yeah. I worked commercially for four years and then I had some friends that transitioned to the corporate side of things, which is private jets. And it's a very kind of, I suppose, exclusive looking world from the outside. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rich dudes. I de- Rich, right. And dudettes. Right. Rich dudes and dudettes. Rich dudes and dudettes. We'll go with that one. I like that. <laughs> So uh, at the time, it was very alluring. Um, I now know much, much better. It's very different. <laughs> How do you um, compare and contrast the two, like commercial versus? Commercial versus. We, so, we'll come back to where you're going, but just mm-hmm. cur- curious um, since you touch on that. So commercial was four years, and then corporate's been something like six or seven years and it's just really different because I can use a lot of the skills that I have like even studied for instance it's almost like running an event which is what I studied but just on a plane you know I get to manage everything myself I don't work well other than pilots I don't normally work with a team so there's a lot of things it's very challenging there's a lot of things to organize sort of like a event planner in the air and you just and you're taking care of everything for that particular flight right exactly so yeah I found I find that very challenging and um, for that reason it it is quite different to commercial um, where you get on and everything's done for you commercial I'd miss commercial for the fact that when I left the plane uh I didn't have any work to do whereas corporate's very different than that Mm. you've got a lot of things to plan before a lot of things to to tie up afterwards um things that keep you on your toes all the time a lot of things that you have to think about so would you say the hours are more or less similar hours and pay like how do you is one more lucrative than the other or or more time intensive Mm -hmm. than the other corporate I feel it's not as regulated, perhaps, as commercial can be. So there definitely is out there 
a huge pay scale difference mm-hmm. in pay scale. But if you get in with the right company or the right private family, it can be a lot more lucrative than commercial. And really that is because of the things I just explained. It's it's a lot more responsibility. Yeah, there's a lot more to your day to your day-to-day tasks and to everything that you need to have arranged in advance um, and all the things that you need to have organized. So there's a big scale there yeah from one end to the other and again that's that that very elusive world that looks very fancy but um it really is about yeah it's a it's a networking thing and it's um and i I mean one thing that i've really enjoyed about connecting with you and the group that we normally spend time with is is that all of us have something to do with aviation i mean your dad's in corporate aviation it's been a total by coincidence that we found all these things out about one another and uh, so, so the world, you know, you know the world, I know the world. It's, it's very interesting, and it's unlike a lot of other worlds. But yeah. it's all about networking and who you know. So. Yeah, I, I always say I think it's funny. Like I was born to a, a pilot and a flight attendant, mm-hmm. so I was right. pretty sure I was just like destined to have right. to travel exactly. a lot. Like there was no no way around it. <laughs> um, it's in your blood. Yeah, it is. It is super cool. Yeah. So, and, and so there's kind of three tiers, right? There's mm-hmm. commercial, there's corporate mm-hmm. and private. Would you, private is private corporate kind more of the same? or less, I would put in the same um, basket. It's just a private jet, a corporate jet, same, same. And I they all fly into a, a private like airport, mm-hmm. uh, the corporate side of things. And obviously you have different the only real difference I would say there is is that you have corporate companies, mm-hmm. the likes of big brands, I suppose, like maybe Sony or yeah. car companies. I don't know, maybe Apple, Amazon. They would have their own fleet of private jets and they that would be the corporate side. And then a private side maybe more so would be like a private family that owns their own jets. Yep. So really it's all within the corporate aviation. I, I can imagine for like so many people that are listening, this is like a whole new world to them. Like this world exists. You know, you think, right. I mean, you know, people have planes, mm-hmm. but like to think about like, you know, there's jobs out there where some of us can find work on a private jet for a pop star is like that really exists Exists, like i I read about it in a fairy tale but that like that really exists i mean there is plenty of jobs out there that just it just blows my mind the kind of job descriptions that some people have and yeah i I, obviously it wasn't something i always knew that existed either but yeah i had some friends that went into it and then the more and more that i started to investigate it it was something that i thought would really suit my personality and yeah, it's it is it is a pretty crazy job. And when when I meet people and people tell ask me what I do, I always do get like a uh, but w- what kind of is that? And people are very confused initially. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it is. It's it's great, and I could talk about it forever, just yeah. like travel, because it is something that I really love. I'm very passionate about it. I can't wait to get back to the world of flying. Hopefully one day, um, post. Hopefully soon. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> And okay, so one point to uh, to clarify on that real quick is you, if somebody wants to get a job in that world, you don't just like knock on the pop star's door. They're run by... <laughs> I wish. That'd be great. Anyone <laughs> I mean, knows sounds... anyone, give me a shout. Just email Chase. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's normally managed by third parties, right? Mm-hmm. So like what does someone do if, you know, like what... what 
did you do or what would you do now if you were somebody that was like, I want to follow in Bree's footsteps. I want to be in corporate aviation mm-hmm. and live this super glamorous lifestyle. Right. What does somebody do? Like, how do you even break into that world? So uh, it differs for different people. Some people have followed the commercial aviation route first and then they've transitioned into corporate. Some people maybe have worked in hospitality or, and when I say that normally, it's probably more so five-star hotels, you know, the likes of Ritz-Carlton mm. and Four Seasons. They've had really a high hospitality training to be able to, to then somehow meet somebody that's maybe put them forward for a position There is a lot of different ways that you hear of people getting the job, but I would say I'm actually kind of maybe brainstorming at the moment about working on some small project. So in the time that maybe that happens and I can can give more information about this, I'll somehow pass that on to you and maybe you can update your show Show links or notes, exactly, and someone can have a look at that. Uh, But there is... Quite a lot of groups, and and this is growing more so the more we go digital and Mm -hmm. have online presence. And there's a lot of Instagram accounts that you could follow that give different tips. One in particular that I would, and I'm sure I don't know her personally, um, but she has a a large online presence and I have um, a bit of a a a corporate flight attendant crush on her, (laughs) to put it it in that way. But yeah, she seems really great. I think her name's Jamie and she goes by the tagline of Flightess. So she'd be a good one to follow and she kind of, I think she has a blog and she has a website and definitely an Instagram account that I follow um, and and gives a lot of tips of different tricks and tips Ah, to be able to to follow that route if you so wish to. And then also, I suppose she probably would tag in a lot of different companies and people that, that you could have like a bit of a stalking day of figuring it all out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could w- weave Piece that web. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do some digital stalking. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, okay. So backing up a little bit. So mm-hmm. you get this job. The first one's with Qatar. Mm-hmm. Is that in Qatar? In Is Qatar. That you got? So, so you, you got the job from Australia, but they moved you to Qatar or? Actually, at the time I was living in London because I had t- taken my studies online and I had moved back to London for a little while and I wasn't able to work legally in London. So at that stage, it was a f- the friend of mine was working in Emirates and she said to me, apply for Qatar. So I, I well, apply for any of the Middle East airlines. Um, they're always looking for people. So Any reason the Middle East airlines in particular or just? At the time, I don't know about, I can't say now because we are going going through this strange time at the time it was just very popular the middle east airlines would hire people from all over the world you know and it was um very possible to be able to get a job gotcha. quite easily at that time well quite easily yeah yeah you know relatively I mean? yeah. relatively easily um if you had the right credentials and experience exactly. and all that yeah Uh, So I went for, yeah, I made an application online and I was called to go for an interview in London at a hotel. It was, I think, like a three-day interview or something. There was different sessions that you had to attend. And each after the first 
session you like people were eliminated and then you were called back and called back and and I was lucky enough to succeed those interviews at those interviews and then they flew me to Qatar and they provided at the time company accommodation and a package and put you through training and then yeah almost four years later I decided that I wanted to take a break and I went back to Australia for some time I just had been away from Australia at that time, maybe eight or nine years. And I think I went back for six or eight months um, before transitioning into corporate. Wow. Hmm. What was your time like in Qatar, if you have to sum it up? Like, did you like, I mean, did you have a desire to travel the Middle East before or was it sort of off the radar? But like, hey, this sounds like an adventure. I'll go for it. Uh, I think it was the latter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, To be honest, I didn't have a huge... I didn't have a huge interest to travel the Middle East or it was just never, yeah, it wasn't on my radar. Maybe more so, and this is a sticky situation after living there, you know, the the Middle East can be, it depends on who you're speaking to, um, but it can be clarified as different regions. But let's just say in a broad, broad way of speaking. Yeah, painting very broad strokes here. So I didn't really have any interest to really go to the United Arab Emirates or Qatar or Saudi basically the places that I ended up living, um, more so maybe Jordan and Israel and Lebanon, like these kind yeah. of places, yes. Uh, at the time, I'm, I still kick myself that I didn't. Um, Syria, you know, I really would love to have gone to. I love markets and bazaars and stuff like that. So I would have loved to have gone to the Damascus Bazaar. So, yeah, it wasn't that particular region. No, it wasn't really of interest to me. But the opportunity came the and opportunity you said, yeah, I'm going to take it. I thought, why not? Um, I can continue my studies and let's just see how this goes. This enables me to be able to fly. I've always wanted to fly. Let's just go with it. And Did you move there alone? I did. Yeah, yeah. you don't have an option when they moved you there at the time as a flight attendant to to go with a family. If you apply as a pilot, and this may change in the future, this was maybe the the days that may have gone. Uh, (laughs) But if you apply as a pilot and you're successful to any of those Middle East airlines, they'll give you a family package and you could move there with your family if you so choose to. But you had the, you, you went alone Mm -hmm. and did what, what were the first couple months? I mean, do you recall, like, was there anything, I imagine there was some culture shock or, or so was, or was it just exhilarating and you enjoyed it or what was the, I think it was just so new and you know, it wasn't completely a lonely experience because as soon as, well, I had met a girl at the interview. She was Spanish actually. Um, and she had been living in London and we flew out together. We were put on the same flight and we were in the same training and we got put in the same building. So Ah, I kind of already had someone that I could talk to. And then they put you in a group of, I think we were like 20 girls ranging from say 21 to 33 or 34 at the time. Uh, and from everywhere, you know, it was a really multicultural group. I think there was two Australians, a Portuguese, some Spanish girls, Chinese, Thai, uh, South Americans. Oh, you were seeing the world in one city. I mean, just in that one room that we were training in, you know, and a lot of us were put in the same accommodation. So we were able to go to training today, um, sorry, training every day together. And then also come home and, you know, like make a meal together and stuff. So you were distracted and it was busy all the time. Um, And then you started flying and things were busy and you'd start to go to different destinations and that was exciting. And then you'd come back to Qatar and you'd meet your friends. I don't know. It was kind of like, okay, I don't – 
in Australia, university, going to college, per, for instance, mm-hmm. I'm doing inverted commas here. <laughs> college is very different. When you go to university in Australia, it's not like what I see in the movies in the US. I don't actually know if that's what exists, but I think it is. From it's probably not from too, too far off the truth, yeah. So we don't have that kind of thing where, you know, you go and you're all like a big family and you have yeah. your, what are those things called? Alpha, beta, what are those uh, things like called? fraternities and sororities. Have, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We don't have that kind of thing where you go to university and, you know, all those people are your friends and it's a constant, what looks to me like a constant party. Uh, but this probably... I, I was very professional in my <laughs> studies, I'll have you know. I'm uh, sure you were, <laughs> uh, So... I would say this was kind of like the closest kind of living to that that I would have experienced in my life. You know, we were all, yeah, always around different girls and yeah. fun. And then you would meet different people from different countries on the plane. And then you're in a different country for a layover. And it was, I just have great memories of it. Super I mean, fun. Middle East in general. Qatar was restricting. Obviously, I was a young female that had moved to a Middle Eastern, well, um, a Muslim country. So there was definitely cultural changes for me. Like, did you have to wear a hijab? I didn't have to wear that. That will come later because I did when I moved to Saudi. Uh, Saudi, We'll get there, folks. Don't worry. (laughs) Australia (laughs) is a lot more. Oh, sorry. Um, Qatar is actually quite, at the time, was still more liberal than Saudi. And so... I don't know, little things like as an Australian female and uh, I was always just brought up to, and I'm, I'm quite, I can be quite, no, I've changed over the years. I've, I think my experiences have softened me a little bit to realize that I have to not always have so much fire in my belly and mm. I can't always stand out for myself, but I was taught that and I was brought up that way. So that was a very difficult thing to see that you moved to a country that you weren't, your opinion or your rights weren't always considered to be your rights weren't always considered let's Just stop full there stop, yeah right? so that was difficult for me and and I did have some troubles to start with and people don't necessarily always speak to you politely in the right ways I don't maybe I don't want to paint Qatar to not be a nice place because there was like I said I only have good memories but yeah definitely there are those things that exist that you do come up against some brick walls and it sometimes can be very, very frustrating. And then also, obviously also you need to be very conscious. I was, I met a guy while I was in Qatar and I had a serious relationship and we weren't, for instance, allowed to walk along the street holding hands or we couldn't kiss in the street. And sometimes we'd slip up. So, uh, you know, there was a few times where we would literally be approached from a passerby and told like, stop touching, stop. So this was he was he a local or also he, an expat? Um, was also an expat, yeah, yeah, and worked for the airline. Yeah, so that's really difficult because it's totally yeah. not within your cultural norm. Exactly, to, you, you want to hold hands so or something. Natural for us that that's what we would do, and yeah, we weren't able to do that, and it was really hard to. I mean, obviously, and, and, you want to respect like a, yeah, the, yeah. the people around you, but 
at the time, you know, to have somebody come up, literally like just a just a passerby, passerby not a, not a police you, officer you know, or something, and tell you, you know, you're offending me by doing that. It's re- it's a real shock. Yeah. Um, and so, then to fight yeah. down that fire in your belly, like you said, to not exactly. say something back, like right. this is my right. Who are you to say? You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that would be very challenging. Mm-hmm. And and they're not like the worst things really that happened. I mean, those you can understand. You move to a Muslim country, they're cultural things. It was more so female rights. And even while we were in in the training college itself in Qatar is, you know, there were some things that I don't know, just little silly things that would get told to me. And I'm like, I, it was just so uh, against my upbringing and it was so hard to not stick up for people around me or stick up for myself. Um, but like I said, I only have good memories. Yeah. Yeah. You went to college fraternity parties in Qatar. Exactly. Most people can't say that. <laughs> the only thing is, too, we weren't allowed to drink at home. I was. I wanted to ask uh-huh. that. So what, what were the rules around alcohol? So Qatar Airways has a little bit of a reputation for having very strict rules. So I don't know if these rules still exist to this day. Uh, This was, say, uh, 10 years ago um, that I started there and I lasted for four years. So up until, say, six years ago. And so we we had a curfew. We had to be home at three o'clock in the morning and we weren't allowed to leave again until seven in the morning. Wow. Um, we weren't allowed to drink who, at Who home. enforced these things? The company. The company. So there's like so company. proper rules. Yeah. And uh, you weren't, uh, that we had a security guard in our building. So, and we had a swipe pass to swipe in the door. So they could uh, record you if you came wow. in after those hours. And that was a fireable offense. And, and what about the local police or something? Would, would there be similar, like actual legal rules that are, similar or would this this is just company rules those were company rules the companies were left to enforce those rules uh i'm trying to think of like i mean just like i said like cultural things you could have gotten in trouble for if you were uh, yeah like kissing or affection in public or plenty of other things maybe that would have the police but no, these were company rules and uh, things. So there was that. We weren't allowed to use our mobile phone in uniform. That was also could be a fireable offense. Wow. But that provided really good standards. And I really appreciate that as a training because I think that sometimes these days we are a bit too relaxed with those things. And, and I found that sometimes that, that could be a really uh, good thing. We also had really strict, strict grooming standards, but that could also be a good thing. It is a hospitality yeah. industry, and I find found that training also very valuable. Yep. Um, and we weren't allowed to have males in our building after 10 o'clock at night. Uh. And we weren't allowed to go and stay anywhere else. So you had to, if you were in Qatar, you had to stay in your building. Uh, so you had to check in every night. You yeah. had to basically swipe in. Right. And you couldn't really... I think you could have asked for permission to stay somewhere else, but it wasn't something that was given very easily. Maybe wow. if you had family that lived in Qatar, they might have let you go and stay. Pretty Fairly strict standards to very live under for four... I mean, for when you think... Years. Yeah. When, yeah. Especially Did you when f- you come from somewhere. Like, yeah. I was living on my own before. It wasn't like I came from living in my parents' house or... Yeah. Yeah. How, what was your mood like towards this, you know, this piece of your career, your... I mean, 
our our lives at any given moment are kind of like comprised of like where we live, who we're surrounded by, our work is a big one, mm-hmm. what were our hobbies and stuff like that. So at this moment, you're living in a foreign country, you're working as a flight attendant, you're you're kind of held down by some of these rules. Mm-hmm. How are you how is your overall mood? Are you like well, I'll, I'll stop there. I won't, I won't give you any like uh, leading questions, but I'm curious about how, what you're thinking about life in this moment. I must say at the time, if anyone that I am, knows me at that time listens to this, they'll be like, you complained all the time. <laughs> uh, I was a cantankerous person at the time. No, I, I didn't necessarily deal with it always well. But when I first initially moved there, I was, as I said before, I was studying online and... These rules gave me a really good structure at mm-hmm. the time. So I would go Maybe on Maybe something flights. you kind of needed a little bit. I did. It, I needed that because it was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's like if your parents tell you you can't eat McDonald's, you want McDonald's, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of that that way of thinking. I needed the structure to have to do my studies and I probably wouldn't have always enforced it if it was le- left upon my own self yeah. to enforce that. So in some way they were kind of, they were like magic rules or yeah. something <laughs> like that, you know. So initially that was that was the case. But I think maybe two of my years I studied online and then the rest of the two, the, the um, following two years, I had finished my degree and I just decided to continue for some time. However, what was one other really big benefit of working for the airline is that you got really great staff passes. Mm -hmm. So good staff discounts to be able to travel places. So I used to try and get as many days off. Like you could, there was a system where you could try to request for certain days off. I would try to do that and I would try and go away as much as possible on my days off. And then therefore, as soon as you're out of the country, you didn't have to abide Uh, by any of the rules. Yeah, that's true. And um, so yeah, like in a so given month, great. how many days would you work roughly versus travel or, or be like, what was the, the work life balance? Mm-hmm. So legally, I think they were supposed to give us eight to 10 days off a month, oh, okay, just cool. like any other real, probably normal job. But generally speaking, I think it would kind of work out more than that, because, for instance, you might fly to, let's say, Beijing mm-hmm. and then you'd get back from a Beijing flight at, say, five o'clock in the morning and then you might not work until four days later so say for instance that was on say a tuesday you'd have wednesday and thursday all the rest of tuesday off okay you would sleep yeah most of it but then you'd have wednesday thursday off and then on friday you might not actually work until say one o'clock well it'd be saturday morning at one o'clock but you'd have to arrive at work at say 10 30 on a friday night so technically you'd kind of have like extra days off Mm -hmm. so that was that was helpful. It yeah. was kind of a nice work-life balance. I, I appreciated it. And so you were getting out of the Middle East so like a decent amount. You would be you'd yes. be in Europe or exactly. other parts of the world. Yes, exactly. Ah, uh, yeah. That must have been <laughs> that must have been really interesting hopping in and out of this world where you have these rules and you're and you're kind of like living uh, like like swiping in and out to like mm-hmm. you're out of you're visiting a friend in London and it's. 3am and you're thinking, oh, I got to be home. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I have a lot of colleagues that we've talked about this since our days there. And all of us went through a transition period where even when we left the company, it was still like a thing that we'd constantly look at our watch, like just to check that we should be going home. I feel this way a little bit with COVID now, you know, it's kind of become like within a less than a year, it's become like really normal to Uh like, I feel weird if I don't have the mask on, or I feel like we have a curfew here currently, you know, I'm like, well, 
we got to be home. Right. You know, like I can imagine it does. four it really years becomes really ingrained in you. I don't know. I saw a meme the other day and I, it's something that I've been doing when you watch TV shows at the moment. I don't know if you have this too, the same experience. But you're kind of looking around at people like, why don't you have your masks on? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's because it has Why are you hugging? Become, you, exactly. You, why did they just uh, kiss just, in the street? Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> it's become so ingrained in me and so second nature that, yeah, that's just the way that we... It, and it shows us how adaptable we are as humans, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so quickly we adapt to things. And and so, yeah, it, it was the same when we left... When I left guitar, it was... I was always looking, yeah, three o'clock at my at my clock or two thirty. You know, oh, I have to get home. Uh, so, and there was a few different things. Even when I the next job that I had, when when I transitioned to to corporate aviation, and I was being trained in that job, I remember my my trainer saying to me like, okay, so you've got to get your mobile out now, and you have to, you know, because we run that you as an individual you run that show so you have to make sure that the catering's ordered and you've spoken to these people and these people organize this and the transport's sorted and maybe your hotel's organized whatever it may be so the company gives you a mobile phone to make sure that you can control all that but it was really ingrained in me that I wasn't able to have my my mobile in uniform and commercial uh, corporate aviation we wear a suit a lot of the time so it's not even something that you can identify what company you work for or but it was just so ingrained in me that I shouldn't take out my mobile phone. So, yeah, it does. There's things that you can be trained to do. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, Qatar, mm-hmm. from Qatar, where'd you go? Back to Australia for some time just to stay with my parents and spend some time with them. And then uh, kept applying for corporate aviation jobs until I was lucky enough to to ha- get one. And then went out to... Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to be trained um, and generally speaking a lot of the companies if you actually fly for if you work for an actual company the company that I got a job with was a charter company so for instance um, just like huh, this is a very interesting way of describing it but let's say for instance you hire an uber it's the same kind of thing if you have enough money you can go to a charter company and you can hire a private jet to fly you and your family or whoever is needed to fly to that destination so i flew for a charter company uh and the charter company a lot of those companies don't have big they're not big companies so they don't have a big training department so they often will send you to to well-known companies to be able to have your training. So I was flown to a company in the States called Flight Safety to have my training. And then, yeah, I continued and our bases were in Riyadh and Jeddah. And I used to work a one-month-on-one-month-off contract. Okay. And Were you pretty much working a full month or was it like you just on call? You were on call and we lived in hotels and, and we would go between I don't know so we worked yeah more or less it was like one month on one month off and in that one month I don't know we could have flown four days or we could have flown 25 yeah so it did vary and uh, and that was not just within Saudi Arabia that was all around the world all over. Mm-hmm. super fun mm-hmm. and what how was the experience living in Saudi Arabia as compared to 
to Qatar? Well, because it was a one month on, one month off situation, it wasn't really, I mean, in Qatar I had an apartment given to me that yeah. I shared. Uh, you felt less immersed in girl. Saudi. Exactly. I stayed in a hotel. It wasn't even like I could cook my own meals. And also there was not really any opportunities to meet other people in the region. I don't think I left Saudi. Other than people that I met at the company, I don't think I left Saudi with knowing anybody there that I just met randomly. Yeah. We were always like when we're at work, we were at work. It was you were switched on to work mode all the time, yeah. more or less. So uh Again, Saudi was even stricter than Qatar. So, yes, I had to wear an abaya in um, Saudi and always had to carry a headscarf. I didn't, as a foreigner, you didn't have to wear a headscarf. But Saudi have, I don't think that this exists anymore, but at the time when I was there, they have a police that are a religious police called the Matawa. Mm-hmm. And if the Matawa catch you in the streets, they have, they ask, they can, they have, they had the power in some way to ask you to put your headscarf on. Okay. So you always had to have your headscarf just in case you were Interesting. So it's like not, not illegal to wear it, to to not wear it. But if these particular type of police Mm -hmm. ask you, you have to put it on. Sure. I remember actually my, my mom telling me stories long ago when she, she flew to Saudi Mm -hmm. from the U.S. on one of her routes regularly and I don't remember the story exactly, but she told me something about wearing jeans had just come into fashion. Okay. And and this is probably in like the 70s. Okay. And she's wearing jeans right. from the U.S. in Saudi and like it was a big deal. I could imagine how controversial that <laughs> yes. would have been at the time. Yeah, I there was a girl that I worked with. Um, we used to stay in this co- compounds, very common there. So foreigners, well, I mean even Saudi people, but you know it's it's a gated community and a lot a lot of things that aren't necessarily supposed to happen go on inside these gated communities. Uh, and uh, like what? Like like I mean, are we talking like scandalous kind of things? Or no, like- I mean you're obviously supposed to, as a female, you're supposed to wear your your uh, buyer all the time, for instance. But um, maybe in the compound. But you in don't. the compound, yeah, depending on the compound. Will that you describe you live that in. too? Like, a, what is this abaya for anybody that doesn't know? So, oh, I'm not going to do this justice. I'm not going to sound very uh, eloquent about this. So I apologize to anyone that's out there thinking, oh, you haven't explained that correctly. <laughs> but, you know, um, a, a, the lot, like generally speaking, it's b- black in color mm-hmm. uh, and it's a long black dress. Okay. It covers everything down to your ankles, like short, down to like neck to neck to Exactly. Everything down, below, yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. Neck not the head, And everything though. below, but not your head. And then you also have, oh, the word escapes me right now. You also have the the hijab. Yeah. So, yeah, you would carry. I would That's just for your head. Reference that before the headscarf. So you would. I would always carry my headscarf. But, yeah, in the compound, depending on what type of compound it was, yeah, there was foreigners that lived in compounds and they would walk around just as per normal. Life would kind of continue behind those gated walls. If you were a foreigner living there, just as per normal, and people could go to the beach. One compound we stay at, stay at had a beach, um, and I remember a colleague was at the beach in a bikini because everybody else around her was, and that particular day there wasn't many people there. 
and this Matawa police somehow got into the compound oh, no. and it wasn't something that was supposed to happen, but somehow they did get in and, and there was a warning light that would go off, you know. If the Matawa were the coming? If the Matawa or if or something, something, if someone in particular, you know, if you should get indoors. <laughs> and, or uh, put on a t-shirt. <laughs> exactly. Um, so she she was caught off guard and started to get chased and was told and she didn't have anything to cover up and and she was just distraught this poor girl and didn't really know what to do and i it's it's it can be really uh, yeah it can be really different to what you might be used to yeah. so but I, again i have very good memories and you just have to have your wits about you and it's it's a great experience yeah. you've gone through what was the best part about living in Saudi? Like, was there anything that stood out to you as like something deep and rich about the culture or like, uh, uh, or, or more so just the experience flying during that time and getting to see more of the world and um, for maybe for lack of a better phrase, getting out. I don't know. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. Let's say it like that. Yeah. Let's just be I honest. Don't know. I think exactly. <laughs> Nobody's listening. It's just me and you. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did, like I said, it wasn't home because we lived in hotels. So I think there was a difference to Saudi. I didn't ever really feel like, you know, I was always going back to a hotel. It wasn't really like I was ingrained within, I didn't have a friendship circle. I think that could make, that can make a really big difference in a place like that. So you, I, maybe I would have seen it through different eyes. Had have I had that experience? I don't have a huge desire to really ever go back there. Yeah. It might happen again for work purposes. And that will just be the way that it goes. There was nothing that really pulls me back there. The thing is too, I, Saudi has changed a lot since I was there a few years ago. Uh, women can now drive. That happened just after I left. For instance... Prior, when I was living there, there was no movie theaters. There's mm. no cinemas. There's no change rooms in malls. Um, there's not a lot of external activities, things that we would be possibly used to that are of ease there, or, or at least that I wasn't introduced to. I didn't know that they existed. Um, now I've heard that changing rooms are possible in malls. So I would say actually my best memories about Saudi mm. is the sales. The malls were great because that was where you'd go. And it's, it's Shopping really, sprees. Yeah, it's really hot a lot of the year. So, you know, the air conditioning in a mall was a good reprieve. Yeah. 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 Interesting. There's not yeah. a lot of interesting that, things for me to say about Saudi. No, I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, I think it's interesting to get the perspective of mm-hmm. living as an expat in Saudi at that time. I mean, it's like not something I believe as far as I know, you're the only person I know that has that experience. So that's why I think it's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And and so anyway, we don't need to go like piece through piece of your uh, your resume here. But I think it's <laughs> but I just think what people are most interested in that are listening to this is like, you know, job types of jobs that can take them to foreign lands. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how you can stay for a long time, visa stuff, finding work once you get to a place, you know, just basically making it like not the five week holiday, right. but the the life style that you want to live, and you've described a million different ways that somebody can do that in the last you know hour or whatever, however long we've been talking. So super interesting. Thank you. Yeah, yeah really, I'm really, really happy love it. to talk about it. I I find the experiences of anyone, yourself included, and Allison and the other friends that we have here, it's just so interesting to talk about 
you know, how people have, I, I completely agree. I think this podcast will be a huge hit because there is so many people out there that I'm sure want to do the same thing. And yeah, it's great to listen to different people's stories and where they've been and what they've done. Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of inspiration from it. And then I, and when I talk to some people and say, oh, I would love to be doing what you're doing. I'm mm-hmm. like, have you heard about Brie? She lived in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> like what? <laughs> so, um, so anyway, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really fun and uh, hopefully people will, will uh, take some inspiration from this. Is there any other part, um, before we wrap up with this, uh, any other part of the Odyssey of Brie that you want to touch <laughs> on or like share that, that we didn't get to? No, not really. Maybe the only thing I can think of is is that uh, we mentioned at the start that my visa here in Spain is um, a non-lucrative visa, the same as what you have. Mm-hmm. And so my transition from Saudi to, to Spain was just because my job was one month on, one month off at the time. And my one month off, the company would basically pay for my flight anywhere in the world uh. so I would I traveled a lot during those months off you know I did the Baltics the Balkans Mexico and I did that for two years and I lived out of a suitcase and then I thought I really need to live somewhere this is so tiring it is exhausting right it's super yeah, fun it, it looks cool really on Instagram tiring. but it's exhausting exactly so uh, I loved it I, I, I really I had such a ball and it was more and in Mexico that painful. must be where you learned your Spanish yeah it's yeah. going really well <laughs> again month. by osmosis exactly <laughs> under my pillow the book went uh, so so yeah I um, I decided traveling home to Australia in some of those months off and it was just too far to, to constantly be going back there the jet lag was was affecting me so my sister lives in Barcelona and I had traveled to Spain many times before so I just decided why not I would like to finally learn Spanish and a few years <laughs> later I'm still on that journey uh, but why not let's let's go and try Spain and almost it's th- just over three and a half years and I I love it here I, I really enjoy it I hope Spain keeps giving me a visa I've met some great people I've had some great adventures and I just can't wait for them to to return it's a great place to base yourself and travel Europe a bit more or anywhere in Europe for that matter yeah. I suppose you have to choose what's what's the, the things that make you happiest you know I have an old boss of mine she's also Australian she chose to live in Chamonix because her and her husband love to ski <laughs> and she was doing the same job as what I've just talked about through this podcast and that enabled them to go and live there and that's fantastic you know I love the beach I love being by the coast I love hiking and I love the weather here so that's why I chose here so I suppose you can just choose what suits you and there's always ways to work it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's like a, an overriding message that I hope people get listening to the different episodes mm-hmm. here is like, there's always a way to figure there's it out. There's always like, ways to work it uh, out. You can, you can make it happen. And I think we very often think like, ah, it's not possible. Like that's right. not within my grasp. And it totally is. It there, totally are, there are so many views. Really I remember when, I, when we first wanted to move to Europe, I like did tons of Google searches looking for ways for Americans to live in Europe and like everything was just like negative no it's not possible no there's like one visa in this one country but like you dig below that layer of crap Mm -hmm. and you get to like people who have are sharing their stories and they're like actually if you just do this 
you can do it. You know, you have to live here for one year, but then you can move wherever you want or whatever. There's just lots of different ways to make it work. I think that's the story. Correct. And these days, like I said to you before, when I first left, there wasn't as many opportunities for that, but I somehow made it work along the time. Uh, And now there's just so many opportunities. You can take so many things online. And I think COVID in a way may, we've had so many changes brought upon us from that, but you know, there may be a lot of companies that that do go digitally and that will give a lot of people opportunities or even if they don't go digitally full-time you know they might be able to live for six months on and six months off in different countries um so i think that i just want to make sure that people know that there's so many opportunities and stay positive to it keep searching yeah (laughs) yeah it's good good advice now i do have some good news and some bad news for you oh he told me he wouldn't surprise me the bad news is You told me not to hit you with any rapid fire questions <laughs> at the end. Do it. And that gave me the idea to hit you with rapid fire oh, no. questions. So I'm we're not gonna good do on that. The spot. But the good news is <laughs> I am also on the spot because I have no plans for this. So oh, I'm okay. gonna be totally shooting from the hip here, <laughs> as we say in the South. Okay. And uh, and I don't know if you if um, if that helps you or, or makes it worse, but mm-hmm. Let's just see where it goes. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm game. Let's go. All right. I got to make something up real quick to get us started. <laughs> What's the, and these are going to be super fast. So first thing that comes to your mm-hmm. mind. Craziest thing you saw flying corporate. Ooh, can't share secrets. You, you That's like say, kissing and no, telling. No, 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 no. But you don't have to give any names or anything. Just, just very quickly like, uh. Okay. Can I tell you about a story that happened to one of my colleagues rather than me? Sure. So uh, one of her colleagues quotations. (laughs) So there was a pickup truck that arrived outside. It was this was in Saudi uh, on outside of the jet on the tarmac. And there was a big, huge silver platter, like huge, like not even something that's that you would ever imagine is possible to hold food. And it was completely like covered in tin foil, aluminium foil. And so these these guys started to bring it on the plane and my friend was like, wait, 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 what are you doing? What is this thing? And they were like, oh, it's for the passenger. It's it's a special thing that's been ordered. Anyway, it turned out it was a a big camel that had been slow roasted and it was like a (gasps) celebration. Uh, Sorry, it was a baby camel, but a roasted camel, like a, yeah, a roasted (laughs) camel that was for a special occasion. So she, there was not even anywhere to store that, you know? So yeah, it was served to the passengers for lunch, but... That was Did she have to serve there. the camel? Well, I don't think so. No. I think she just got, was able to remove the aluminum <laughs> foil and it was just like, voila, here you go. You know, something like that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to stop with rapid fire right there. That's, <laughs> that is the perfect way to wrap up. I, we can't top that. Uh, roasted camel Hi. served on a private jet while flying over Saudi. Um, <laughs> Let's 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 end there before yeah. we get we go in a in a negative direction. Uh, we'll end on a high note. So, Bree, thank you so much. This was really fun for me personally. Me I too. just enjoyed chatting with you and learning more. And uh, I have no doubt people will really enjoy the information that you that you shared. So, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Chase, for having me. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. You can visit aboutabroad.com to get our latest updates and listen to past episodes, or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, really anywhere you get your podcasts. On that note, if you enjoyed the show, feel free to subscribe, and if inclined, leave a few stars and a review. It's truly, truly appreciated and will help more wanderers just like you 
find us. Until the next time, adios from España.